Welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include graduate students like myself, my name is Nidhi, and I am a second year master's student, as well as some other PIN trainees, Hola a todos, yo soy Elisol. Namaste, I'm Kripa. Today we are very excited to have with us Dr. Rolf Klen. Dr. Klen is the Vice President for Nutrition at Helen Keller International and a Senior Associate in the Program for Human Nutrition at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Klen has more than 35 years of professional experience in international public health nutrition. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Klen. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. So to start us off, we would love to hear more about your early earlier career trajectories. And perhaps you could tell us about how you got started as a graduate student and what brought you to the field of international nutrition. Well, great. Well, thank you for, uh, for having me. And um, yeah, I, I think I would start by saying all of us who went to this career have our own paths. Probably my path is one I wouldn't recommend for, and I'll tell you a little bit about it because it probably made it more challenging than it needed to be. But I started out as an undergraduate studying biology. I had a very intense interest in biology, but I also had an interest in things international. And I felt in many respects, it would be nice to be working internationally. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to be a doctor because doctors have a um, service that they can provide to people who often don't have healthcare services. I also was uh, influenced by the life of Albert Schweitzer at the time and the good that he did. So I finished the degree in, in biology, but as part of the degree, I also was able to take a semester and spend it in Sri Lanka. And that's sort of where I really learned about life in a country that was undergoing fairly large population shift where there were so many issues that influenced people's lives and their health as well. And so when I came back to finish my degree at the Colgate University, I started to apply to medical schools. I took the MCATs and I got frozen feet. I said, you know, I can't see myself after four grueling years in undergraduate going right back into you know, the thick of studying because the world had been open to me by traveling. And so I thought, well, how can I get overseas again? And at that time, there were a few options. You become, do something in a religious group. And I wasn't particularly religious. You could apply for a fellowship. Those are really selective. Or at the time I applied for the Peace Corps, I was at the time, probably, I don't know about undergraduates these days, I was suspicious of the government and the Peace Corps is a government institution, but that was the way I could get back overseas. And I applied as a, um, a nutrition volunteer. And as the Peace Corps will sometimes allow you to get into fields that you haven't really studied for, biology and nutrition, well, they're interrelated, but they aren't necessarily one and the same. And so I found myself in a very rural area in the northern part of the Philippines, in a non-electrified area, working at a very community level with midwives, you know, health service providers with the rural health physician and nurses. And as most Peace Corps volunteers would tell you, you gain a lot more than you give. I mean, I was a young kid. I was 22, 23, but I got exposed to so much. And that solidified my interest, one, in understanding that you don't have to have clinical training 
really public health training, I felt was what was what was needed. Plus, I thought I'd be a terrible surgeon. So I came back after Peace Corps and I learned about public health and that you can actually do a graduate degree in public health. And as most of you are probably who go to graduate school, you recognize how expensive it can be. And Hopkins at the time offered an MPH in 11 months. So, and I it had a good, and it had a, you know, a good reputation. So I went into debt, took out loans and threw myself into the Masters of Public Health program at Hopkins. I came out of that program, I kind of say I knew enough to be dangerous. And I say that because you can only learn so much in a classroom. You can learn a lot about statistical analysis and you can become very versatile and in, in running regression models. And therefore you can be dangerous <laughs> because you really need to understand where the data comes from, what it says, what it doesn't say, how it was sampled. And that takes really getting involved, in my view, at a primary level in a research endeavor. So, so I did finish my, my degree at Hopkins very quickly into 11 months, and I was an MPH graduate. And as you know, you've now got to find money to pay back your loans. I, I ended up joining a for-profit organization. Some people will not so nicely describe it as a Beltway Bandit. And it turned out to be a fascinating experience for me to understand the business of public health because there is a business side to it. And in a short while, less than a year, I had grown a distaste for it. I had a classmate of mine that talked to me about a project in the Philippines. And I, I mention that because you as students, some of your best advocates and networks and linkages to jobs now and in the future will be each other. And I can say that for me, that was very much the case. And it opened a door and I ended up taking a job as the child survival program manager for Helen Keller in the Philippines right after my master's degree. But that was sort of kind of put it myself in your shoes and I graduated and I, like I said, I needed to find a job to pay back loans and I did. But then other doors opened up mostly through my linkages with other classmates. Wow, thank you. It does sounds like a story, uh, like an adventure that we can relate with because it's very real, all the, all the challenges and the uncertainties uh, of being a graduate student and also having to go back into what is sometimes called the real world. We, we hear a little bit about that story. I, we wonder how is it now? Like what is a normal day or at least a common day in your life? Um, and I know that may be different. I heard you a little bit before mentioning a, a, a upcoming travel plans. So maybe, you know, a little bit about how, how does it look to be in your shoes for one day? You know, about eight years ago, I took this position of vice president for nutrition for Helen Keller. It was a new position. So there wasn't really a, a defined job description. There was very general, but, it, but essentially it's responsible for the technical quality of the work we do. It is responsible for building relationships across both funding organizations, but also other research partners, as well as other um, implementing partners. It's recruiting good people and finding young leaders to take on important um, uh, lead, important projects or contribute to that. It's looking at the research agenda and um, deciding and it's writing funding proposals. 
it is um, dealing with management issues. So a typical day for me begins very early. I'm usually up uh, by 4, 4.30. And part of that is because I am an early riser. But also part of it is because we have programs that are 13 hours ahead of us. And the Philippines is a 13 hours ahead of uh, Baltimore. Our Asia programs are ahead of us. So any meetings that involve them require you know, starting those meetings at five, six, uh, seven o'clock, for example. I would say right now, most of my work has been virtual, which has been both a blessing and a curse. I used to travel probably twice a month across one ocean or the other, which is a challenge when you have a family because it takes you away from your kids, for example. And, you know, I just would like to say that those of you who are pursuing this career and do have a partner or and or children, you can you can do them all, but there's something things that they, they could sacrifice along the way. So I think it's important to go into that both with your partner and with your kids. Um, it's not a it's not an easy task sometimes to find a position for both you and your partner, or if you've got to pull the kids away from school at a certain time of certain age and move them. Uh, there are there are pros and cons to it. So my day is spent a lot with in various meetings reviewing. Um, either technical projects, assessing funding opportunities, um, looking at how we might partner with different organizations, as well as reviewing manuscripts. I have gotten away from the day-to-day -day analysis of data. I mean, I still can get into it, but uh, it's something I really enjoyed previously. But like any language, if you don't use it, you tend to lose it or it just takes you a lot longer. So while I still can, I have people who are much younger and much more yeah, immersed and brighter <laughs> that I, I need to rely on. Great. That does sound very busy. And we were wondering, what are some of the skills that you have gained during your PhD work that helped you in your current work? And also for current graduate students and young professionals, what do you think are the main skills to focus on in the field of international nutrition? So it kind of depends on your career path, but I think a set of skills that will serve you well, no matter what career path you're in, is first of all, critical thinking, right? And that is understanding and being able to think through the evidence to understand that one study does not a policy or program make. It's an important contribution, but you need to look at the whole or the, the body of work to see, to look at consistency or exceptions. So I think that that's one critical piece. The other piece I would say is as a master's student and also a PhD student, I would choose courses where you learn methods, whether they're analytic methods, data collection methods, sampling methods. Methods are the tools of you know, understanding research design. Those are the tools of public health, which have a lot to do with measurement understanding what you're measuring and what you can or cannot interpret from those measurements or those indicators. So I think those are important. Now, if you're happy to, happen to, happening to go into a program field, there are other things that you might not get exposed to in the School of Public Health. And I can tell you a few of those that I've had to wing not very well. Uh, putting together a budget, thinking through, you know, if you're doing a research program, what really will it entail when you have a data collection team? What's what you know? What's the train? There are a lot of details that go into that. So I think that's one. The other piece is how do you communicate science to non-scientists? We're very good at communicating with each other, 
both statistically, quantitative data, qualitative data in some cases, but we're terrible about distilling that and bringing the salient findings to those individuals who could and should benefit from those, those findings. I, and the third piece I would want to say is, I'm not sure this is a skill, I think it's a skill you learn in life, building relationships across disciplines, across institutions. When I look back at my life, that has been probably the thing that has you know, allowed me to either bring people together from different groups, learn from different groups. And I think that that's a, a lifelong skill that's you, you can hone it you know, with your student colleagues, with your relationship with your, um, with your mentors. But I really think that that's, you know, there's not a course for that. I guess the course is called life. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think sort of very important things to keep in mind. It's one of those sort of like ongoing things as we face different challenges and, and, and a little bit coming from there. We were wondering if uh, you could tell us a bit from your perspective, what would be the main priorities or challenges in the field of public health nutrition for the upcoming years? Yeah, well, you know, my generation hasn't solved many of the ones that, that existed. So there, we've left many, many challenges for you all. I look at them in a couple of ways. There are a lot of things that we know work from studies. We have done an abysmal job of scaling those up in terms of quantity and quality and getting those to reach people who need them at the right time in the right way. So um, this, this notion of taking things that we already know and making sure that they get scaled in a, an appropriate way. But there are emerging issues um, that we're learning. We tend to work with the health system as a, um, the public health system as a platform for delivering services. But we know that you know, the best nutrition comes from the food you eat, um, or it can come from the food you eat. And we're learning more and more that to eat a nutritionally adequate diet is beyond the means of 30, 40% of the population. And so or we just have to teach people what to eat. Quite frankly, that makes no sense if people don't have the means. And, and so I think there are systems things that need to be changed. But there are the, the ways systems exist currently are for a reason. There are economic gains. There are economic interests in keeping things the way they are. Um, there's economic reasons for keeping the poor poor. Uh, and um, there are economic reasons for the food systems the way they are. And I would say, for example, you know, the United States has been great at producing cheap food. And when you export that, there's a little incentive to develop the local food system, for example. So when they're disturbances in the flow of food, You're, you've got countries that are caught with no investment in agriculture. So I definitely think one of the challenges is looking at how do you make two things, food more affordable, particularly to lower income populations, and how do you bring up the income levels of those populations who in many cases are engaged in food production or in some aspect of the food system. And we're learning it's not easy to make food less nutritious food less expensive. We need to find new ways to do that. A lot of that food is perishable. And if you're producing it in, um, and have to make it travel a long way, you need infrastructure. You need roads. You need uh, cold houses. You need ways of stuff. So it requires that kind of investment, which is not something we are trained to do in nutrition. But I think that's a huge challenge. The third area I would say is nutrition in urban in urban environments, because 
urbanites like myself, I don't grow my own food. I'm sure you, you probably don't, although I know in Cornell, you probably could, but I don't know if you do. Um, and what we eat is determined in part by what's available to us and what we can afford. And when resources are constrained, you rely on essentially the cheapest food that tastes good. And um, those could be highly processed, which are somewhat um, lacking in, in really important nutritional value. And urban people, there's less stability there. There's daily wage earned. You, you oftentimes are a laborer. And what you can afford to, to buy, both to eat and for other things, depends on what, whether you've got a job and what you make for that day. So I think that's an important area that we don't really have a good handle on. There, there are other challenges, but I, I think those are scale, you know, taking interventions that we know work to scale, figuring out how do you make food, nutritious food more affordable and or people with low income increase their income. And then the whole issue of providing both nutrition services and affordable food to particularly urban poor. Thank you. So as students, we typically end up thinking nutrition education can help coming from the nutrition side, but it is good to know that the key challenges remain in how to scale things, uh, especially for what we already know and how to make food more affordable, especially for urban poor as well. So we are just taking down notes. I'm pretty sure Nidhi and Elizabeth are doing that too. So thank you so much. And we are almost towards the end of our podcast. Uh, as we wrap up, we just have two questions for you and you can answer them in no particular order. What is the best thing and the worst thing about your job? The best thing for me is, is working with the teams in the countries and trying both help build their capacity, but also to learn from them. Um, I was a country director uh, for Helen Keller uh, many, many years ago. I can say in 19 forgotten. And when you take on a role for an organization in a country, there are a lot of factors you have to consider. It's not just technical. Um, they're political. There are all sorts of things. So to me, it's working with the teams to help solve those issues. The worst part is always having to find resources to support the country work and not having enough of the resources that need to really be brought to bear on a large scale for some of these projects. We, we do projects. We work with the government to, to test out things, but that is, and, and that's satisfying, but that is only the beginning. You know, the, the question then is how do you mobilize the management resources, the financial resources, the structural changes that need to take place in order to make those programs and interventions reach those who are most likely to benefit from them and to deliver those in a way that are easy for people to access, respond to their perspectives and needs, and obviously you know, address the underlying cause in as cost-efficient ways you can. So I think the frustrating part is always, always trying to look for resources, but that's the part that also keeps you going. I mean, it also means that you've got to use your resources wisely. We don't travel business class. <laughs> you try to find, you know, you economize on where you stay and so forth. So those are some of the challenges. And that about wraps up our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Clem. It was great having you here with us. My pleasure. And it's a, a delight to speak with you. Yeah, it was great to learn about everything you're doing and everything you've done so far. And thank you to the listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. 
Many thanks to Elena Kurki for our theme music.